two wizards. Two wizards? Two wizards. Two wizards. Well, Mark, uh, I guess we can we can cross this one off. Uh, listeners, I don't know if you were waiting with bated breath, um, but I did it uh, yesterday. The Mrs. Wizard and I saw the Barbie movie. We we saw Barbie. Oh yeah, and. And you know it was I and granted like uh, typical Josh fashion because um, it's been out what like two weeks something like that two uh-huh. and a half weeks and yeah like oh yeah that, that looks kind of cool maybe I'll see that and then just completely missing that entire like crested wave come in um, but yeah I finally saw it and you know whatever spicy takes whatever hot takes there are I, I keep seeing. Like this, this movie's so woke. I'm gonna burn a bunch of Barbie dolls to protest. It's like, well, that's kind of dumb. Uh, and then on the other hand, I'm seeing like, there's there's all these women who are breaking up with their boyfriends because of the Barbie movie. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, if your relationship isn't strong enough to like endure watching a movie, then yeah, you probably shouldn't be together. I don't know if that's like a big W necessarily. Um, <laughs> But all that is to say, like, it's okay. Like, I, I, I really appreciate how much of the because you know, like, uh, you and I and Brad were talking about on I can't, I can't wait to show my kids and the um, 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the uh, amount of practical effects that were in the Barbie movie. Um, like, it has CGI because, of course, oh, of course, it has yeah. CGI. Yeah. Um, but no, like having like, yeah, those big goofy, like plastic tennis rackets or, um, uh, milk carton. Um, that's, that's a, that's a phys, that's a physical, tangible thing. Like kudos on them. Like for all of the dream houses that are like, yeah, like actual things and not just like blue screen. That was cool. It, it was just kind of a jumbled, I don't know. It was just kind of a jumbled mess. I think, I think it was like. Like I could discern three or four interesting movies that were, were, were like you pick any one of those and it would have been like top notch. But I think they all kind of got smushed together. I think they all kind of got corporatized mm. and um, uh, yeah, death by committeed into like, oh, well, the market research shows that we need to talk about the patriarchy or whatever, you know, it was so it's, it was all right. It was good. It's not a full-on, like, gnarled wizard thumbs up, <laughs> but nor is it a gnarled wizard thumbs down. It's just, it's a gnarled, like, wizard um, conjuring uh, uh, goblin to <laughs> go, yeah, go, yeah, go send your enthralled goblin hordes to watch Barbie and then just, like, <laughs> extract it using a soul gem. And then you'll have that experience. <laughs> Okay, there you go. Yeah, and then, you know, you get, like, different methods of, like, intake, and there's going to be the goblin that's like, this was way too woke, I can't believe it, and there's another <laughs> goblin that's going to leave her goblin boyfriend for it, and then there's going to be other goblins just like, I want my job to just be beach, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah, and then you'll experience it all together, I get you, yeah. 
Right, exactly. And and have them all dress up in pink and stop in like the Barbie box for their photo ops and um, yeah, all that. <laughs> That's so. Oh, well, I, I guess I, I want to see this happen. Yeah, right. I mean, shoot, man, we could. I could go back. I could. Yeah, I could put on goblin face and <laughs> go ahead and rewatch Barbie. Um, but all that is to say, yeah, listeners, it's a solid sure uh, from from this wizard. Um, but uh, but if you do want more, if you do want more, much more nuanced movie takes, definitely check out. I can't wait to show my kids that Mark and Brad do. Going into all all the classics, but also some stinkers, and when's a good time to show your kids? This is definitely not a movie to bring your kids. Like it, like it's not, it's 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 not bad Santa level because I totally saw like entire families in the movie theater oh, no. watching Bad Santa, and I was like, "You idiots! What's wrong with you? <laughs> this is clearly not a movie for kids. Um, it's not to that level." But yeah, like there, I, I saw like I don't know, like three or four school age young girls who were super excited to watch Barbie, and it's like, yeah, this is not, this is not for them. It's for their moms, but it's not for them. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, it's it's fine. It's okay. But, um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Talking about, um dredging up like like something that you thought was long and dead but you're going to resurrect it and bring it back because you have this knowledge you have like no this is how we're going to do the barbie movie like man mark whatever whatever could that be <laughs> about this new episode of the two wizards podcast welcome everybody always wonderful to have you with us again from our wizards towers my name is josh and i am a wizard and my name is Mark, and I am a wizard. And yes, welcome back, everybody. Josh, I don't know about you. I'm excited to what we're doing tonight. It's been a it's mm-hmm. been a minute. It's been like it better than a year. I think like 18 months, if my timing is right. It since well, we yeah, because we, we are doing tonight. Yeah, we we sort of left left this be for a bit. We went hard into the. Uh, Robert Howard Conan series, but but it is it's good to be back in some f- familiar cosmic horror-y, um pulpy goodness with tonight's episode. Um, but uh, well, I guess I don't know. Maybe that also kind of could be a transition. Speaking of pulpy goodness, uh, <laughs> Mark, what is in our wizards' mugs uh, as we as we venture? into this week's episode um tonight in keeping with our theme we wanted to do something special but we had to do something really special because they couldn't be you know 40s or four locos or some other variation therein. Yeah. but we're Forsters. talking back and forth forster yeah forsters we, we're not doing forsters we got cute this time and maybe you're gonna raise a little dead of our own i don't know that was a dumb transition josh we're <laughs> drinking zombies the drink zombies yeah. what is in Zombie your cocktail. wizard's zombie what did you make your frankenstein's zombie out of <laughs> well i am giving all credit to you because when we first landed on this idea we both went to our mixology app of choice or our google uh bar barkeep.com whatever um because we we're like yeah zombies would be great and then we saw the ingredient list that's like half a mile long and i don't want to buy all these weird 
liqueurs that you're just going to sit around. Like I remember the creme de menthe uh, episode where I was just like sitting on top of my <laughs> counter forever. So all credit to you for finding a pared down, simpler, much more manageable zombie recipe. So I have light and uh, I, I guess just regular. Yeah, just regular golden maybe yeah uh, yeah and and light rum from bacardi uh and i uh, got a little uh lime juice got a lot of pineapple juice little dash of grenadine and then my my mrs wizard as she does goes all out and she 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 got she also got some mint and uh orange so i can do oh, like a little bit of garnish got a little bit of garnish there so that's mine that's that's mine i'm building off of this very nice pared down recipe that you found um, what about yours? Did you, did you do anything a little different? Did you put your own spin on it? Well, you know, typical to true wizard fashion, I say, let's do a thing. And I can't perform the thing, but damn it, I tried my best. So number one, mm-hmm. there's no pineapple juice to be found. All uh, right. So we improvise and buy a $7 bottle of a coconut pineapple juice. Ooh. Okay. It's a little pithy. We'll say mm-hmm. that's that's cool. And then to cut that, I used coconut pineapple flavored water, then with orange juice. Okay. And then I was for sure, for sure that I had both light and gold rum. I didn't. I had a tiny bit of light rum and a bunch of 151. So oh. I did a shot of um, light rum, half a shot of 151, and then a shot of bourbon. And I was trying to think oh, of like last year when I did that bloody or that mar- uh, margarita that I made with uh, peaches yeah. and bourbon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hell yeah, dude. I, I mean, that sounds good to me. Like, it, like if you're a coconut fan, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's a great one. But okay, well, hey, here is Anya, buddy. Cheers, good buddy. Cheers. As I almost swallow this mint leaf. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's solid. It's good stuff. Yeah, not bad at all. Super fruity and light. And refreshing, mm-hmm. so yeah. well, and and with all, I mean, we just talked about this um, last week with our uh, ancient barbecue man. Any sort of tiki drink, uh, yeah, just twist my arm because, boy, howdy, they. Oh, I'm yeah. a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Uh, okay, well, we have our mugs. We are in our wizards' towers, and we've hinted at this. Let's go ahead and say it. we are returning. For the first time in a while, but also the first time for season seven, we're going to read some Lovecraft. Yeah, we are. And specifically, we're going to read Herbert West, Reanimator. Um, Mark, when was the last time you read Reanimator? Um, except for this morning when I pre-read it so I don't fumble all over my words like a dumb shit. It had been a minute. Yeah, It had same. been quite a while. Yeah, I want to say that I... I want to say I watched something, and it was it's something on Amazon Prime with some type of reanimate or something. But okay, it had been a minute. Well, How about you, buddy? Uh, yeah, it had also been quite a while for me. Uh, I think I was still back in Colorado because um, oh, wow. it, it was whenever whenever I first drunk deeply from the Lovecraft well, um, and I found like a like a the collected works thing on like Google Books and read through all of those. So yeah, it's also been a minute for me, um, and. I'm sure when we take our breaks between reading the chapters or reading the sections, we will also, uh, I'm sure, spend some time to talk about the Reanimator uh, movie, mm-hmm. because that's also a thing. Uh, but that's not where we're going to start. We are going to start at the very beginning, which is a very yeah. good place to start. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. 
so would you like the honors mark? Yeah, I'll take her away. Perfect. All right. So this is Herbert West Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 1, From the Dark. Herbert West, who was my friend in college and in afterlife, I can speak with only extreme terror. This terror is not due altogether to the sinister manner of his recent disappearance, but was engendered by a whole nature of his life work, and first gained its for more than 17 years ago, when we were in our third year of course at Miskatonic University Medical School in Arkham. While he was with me, the wonder and diabolism of his experiments fascinated me utterly, and I was his closest companion. Now that he is gone and the spell is broken, the actual fear is greater. Memories and possibilities are even more hideous than the realities. The first horrible incident of our acquaintance was the greatest shock I had ever experienced. It was with only reluctance that I repeat it. As I have said, it happened when we were in medical school, where West had already made himself notorious through his wild theories of nature and death, and the possibility of overcoming it artificially. His views, which were widely ridiculed by the faculty and his fellow students, hinged on his essentially mechanistic nature of life, and the means for operating the organic machinery of mankind, calculated by chemical action after the failure of natural processes. In his experience with various animating solutions, he had killed and treated immense numbers of rabbits, guinea pigs, cats, dogs, and monkeys, till he had become the prime nuisance of the college. Several times he had actually obtained signs of life in the animals, supposedly dead, in many cases violent signs. But he soon saw that the perfection of this process, if indeed possible, would necessarily involve a lifetime of research. It likewise became clear, since the same solution never worked alike on different organic species, he would require human subjects for the further and more specialized process. It was here that he first came into conflict with the college authorities, and was debarred from future experiments by no less a dignitary than the dean of the medical school himself, the learned and benevolent Dr. Alan Halsey, whose work in behalf of the stricken is recalled by every old resident of Arkham. I had always been exceptionally tolerant of West's pursuits, and we frequently discussed his theories, whose ramifications and corollaries were almost infinite. Holding with Haeckel that all life is a chemical and physical process, and that the so-called soul is a myth, my friend believed that artificial reanimation of the dead can depend only on the condition of the tissues, and that unless actual decomposition has set in, a corpse fully equipped with organs may, with suitable measures, be set going again in the peculiar fashion known as life. That the psychic or intellectual life might be impaired by the slight deterioration of sensitive brain cells, which even a short period of death would be apt to cause, West fully realized. It had at first been his hope to find a reagent which would restore vitality before the actual advent of death, and only repeated failures on animals had shown him that the natural and artificial life motions were incompatible. He then sought extreme freshness in his specimens, injecting his solutions into the blood immediately after the extension of life. It was this circumstance which made the professors so carelessly skeptical, for they felt that true death had not occurred in any case. They did not stop to view the matter closely and reasonably. It was not long after the faculty had interdicted his work that West confided to me his resolution to get fresh human bodies in some manner, and continue in secret the experiments he could no longer perform openly. To hear him discussing ways and means was rather ghastly, 
for at the college we had never procured anatomical specimens ourselves. Whenever the morgue proved inadequate, two local Negroes attended to this matter, and they were seldom questioned. West was then a small, slender, spectacled youth with delicate features, yellow hair, pale blue eyes, and a soft voice, and it was uncanny to hear him dwelling on the relative merits of Christ Church Cemetery and the Potter's Field. We finally decided on the Potter's Field, because practically every body in Christchurch was embalmed. A thing, of course, ruinous to West's researches. I was by this time his active and enthralled assistant, and helped him make all his decisions, not only concerning the source of the bodies, but concerning a suitable place for our loathsome work. It was I who thought of the deserted Chapman farmhouse beyond Meadow Hill, where we fitted on the ground floor an operating room and laboratory, each with dark curtains to conceal our midnight doings. The place was far from any road, and in sight of no other house, yet precautions were nonetheless necessary, since the rumors of strange lights started by a chance nocturnal roamers who would soon bring disaster on our enterprise. It was agreed to call the whole thing a chemical laboratory if any discovery should occur. Gradually, we equipped our sinister haunt of science with materials either purchased in Boston or quietly borrowed from the college. Materials carefully made unrecognizable to save expert eyes, and provided spades and picks for the many burials we should have to make in our cellar. And the college was at the college we used an incinerator, but the apparatus was too costly for unauthorized laboratory use. Bodies were always a nuisance. Even the small guinea pig bodies from the slight clandestine experiments in West's room and in the boarding house. We followed the local death notices like ghouls. For our specimens demanded particular qualities. What we wanted were corpses interred soon after death and without any artificial preservation, preferably free of malforming disease and certainly with all organs present. Accident victims were our best hope. Not for many weeks did we hear of anything suitable, though we talked with the morgue and hospital authorities ostensibly in the college interest, and as soon as we could, without exciting suspicion. We found the college had its first choice in every case, so that it may be necessary to remain in Arkham during the summer, when only the limited summer school classes were held. In the end, though, luck favored us. For one day, we heard an almost ideal case in the potter's field. A brawny young workman drowned only a morning before in Sumner's Pond, and buried at the town's expense without delay or embalming. That afternoon, we found the new grave, and determined it to begin work after midnight. It was a repulsive task that we undertook in the black small hours, even though we lacked at that time the special horror of graveyards which later experiments brought to us. We carried spades and oil-dark lanterns, for although electric torches were then manufactured, they were not as satisfactory as the tungsten contrivances of today. The process of unearthing was slow and sordid. It might have been gruesomely poetical if we had been artists instead of scientists. And we were glad when our spades struck wood. When the pine box was fully uncovered, West scrambled down and removed the lid, dragging out and propping up the contents. I reached down and hauled the contents out of the grave, and then both toiled hard to restore the spot to its former appearance. The affair made us rather nervous, especially the stiff form and vacant face of our first trophy, but we managed to remove all traces of our visit. When we had padded down the last shovelful of earth, we put the specimen in a canvas sack and set out for the old Chapman place beyond Meadow Hill. On an improvised dissecting table in the old farmhouse, by the light of a powerful acetylene lamp, the specimen was not very spectral-looking. It had been a sturdy and apparently unimaginative youth of wholesome plebeian type, large-framed, gray-eyed, and brown-haired, 
a sound animal without uh, psychological subtleties, and probably having vital processes of the simple and healthiest sort. Now, with the eyes closed, it looked more asleep than dead, though the expert test of my friend soon left no doubt on that score. We had at last what West had always longed for, a real dead man of the ideal kind, ready for the solution as prepared according to the most careful calculations and theories for human use. The tension on our part became very great. We knew that there was scarcely a chance for anything like complete success, and could not avoid hideous fears at possible grotesque results of partial animation. Especially were we apprehensive concerning the mind and impulses of the creature, since in the space following death, some of the more delicate cerebral cells might well have suffered deterioration. I myself still held some curious notions about the traditional soul of man, and felt an awe at the secrets that might be told by one returning from the dead. I wondered what sights this placid youth might have seen in inaccessible spheres, and what he could relate to fully restored to life. But my wonder was not overwhelming since for the most part I shared the materialism of my friend. He was calmer than I as he forced a large quantity of his fluid into a vein of the body's arm, immediately binding the incision securely. The waiting was gruesome, but West never faltered. Every now and then he applied his stethoscope to the specimen and bore the negative results philosophically. After about three quarters of an hour, without least sign of life, he disappointedly pronounced the solution inadequate but determined to make the most of his opportunity and try and try one change in the formula before dis disposing of his ghastly prize. We had that afternoon dug a new grave in the cellar and would have to fill it by dawn, for although we'd fixed the lock on the house, we wished to shun even the remotest risk of a ghoulish discovery. Besides, the body would not even be appropriately fresh the next night. So taking the solitary acetylene lamp into the adjacent laboratory, we left our silent guest on the slab in the dark and, beat, and bent every energy into mixing of a new solution, the weighing and measuring supervised by West with an almost fanatical care. The awful event was very sudden and wholly unexpected. It was I was pouring something from one test tube to another, and West busy over the alcohol blast lamp, which he had to answer for a Bunsen burner in the gasless edifice. When from the pitch black room we had left there burst the most appalling and demoniac succession of cries that either of us had heard not more unutterable could have been the chaos of hellish sound if the pit itself had opened up to release the un the agony of the damned for in one inconceivable cacophony was centered all the supernatural terror and unnatural despair of inanimate nature Human it could not have been it is not in man to make such sounds and without thought of late employment or possible discovery of both, West and I leapt to the nearest window, stricken like two animals. Overturning tubes, lamps, retorts, and vaulting madly into the starred abyss of the rural night. I think we screamed ourselves as we stumbled fr frantically toward town, though as we reached the outskirts we put, in on, we put on a semblance of restraint, just enough to seem belated revelers staggering home from a debauch. We did not separate, but managed to get to West's room, when he whispered with the gas up until dawn. By then we had calmed ourselves a little with rational theories and plans for investigation, so that we could sleep through the day, classes being disregarded. But that evening, two items in the paper, wholly unrelated, made it again impossible for us to sleep. The old deserted Chapman farmhouse had inexplicably burnt into an amorphous heap of ashes that we could understand because of the unset lamp. 
Also, an attempt had been made to disturb a new grave in the potter's field, as if by the futile and spadeless clawing at the earth. That we could not understand, for we had patted down the mold very carefully. And for seventeen years after that, West would look frequently over his shoulder and complain of fancied footsteps behind him. Now he has disappeared. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. Oh, man. So, so good. So sick. Like, what was that? When they're talking about the, like, the, the, like, horrible screams. Human it could not have been. It is not in man to make such sounds. Yeah. Dream. Oh, boy. Oh, and listeners, I should have said this as we return back to the Necronomicon. Remember to play your favorite drinking game along with us. When you hear this sound, you take a drink oh, too. Oh, true. See, okay, yeah, we are totally out of uh, out of practice here because, um, man, the the Castle Thunders are going to come come hard and fast <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> drink, drink. Um, yeah, okay. So already, uh, I and I would imagine most people who are maybe listening to this for the first time, and I'm thinking of another very famous story about a uh, failed medical student trying desperately to uh, revive the dead. And that is, of course... um... (laughs) Now I'm just thinking of our Young Frankenstein episode. (laughs) Oh, I thought that was the joke you were going to make. And that, of yeah. course, was our young Frankenstein. Was our, was our young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Herbert West wanted to revive Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle. <laughs> um, well, but also, so Mary Shelley's Frankenstein has a very near and dear kind of place in my library of the soul, I guess. Um, that was one of the first books that I taught during my student teaching. Um and so, and so, yeah, it's like, all right, I'm a, I'm a big boy teacher now. I have to try to reach these kids and tell them what a frame story is. <laughs> <laughs> all right, boys and girls, who can find Ingolstadt on a, on a map? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, so of, of course, right, we see something very similar here. Uh, Herbert West. But at, at, at least so far, it's not explained why he's so interested in reanimating the dead. Uh, he just, I don't know, that's just something that, that he wants to do. And he runs afoul of his academic advisor who <laughs> says, no, 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 no more. <laughs> um, I don't know, any other, any other things that are jumping out at you, Mark, uh, at the conclusion of ch- chapter one, part one? Subsection one. Um, yeah, other than Love, uh, Lovecraft wrote this uh, period, or you know, this was written out to be put into a periodical. So mm-hmm. you can really tell, and we're going to see here in the next in the upcoming chapters how he's going to repeat all his stuff. He's going to remind us of what we saw, you know, in the last in last week's edition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm also just amazed at how quickly this reads. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. I, that was yeah. that was a ten minute chapter. You know, nothing at all, and literally everything we need. And it's kind of cool to see when like. Lovecraft isn't allowed to be like, you know, super, super, super wordy, just only a little bit kind of sort of wordy. Yeah, yeah, the, um, which also goes back to my 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, when you have constraints, when you have restrictions that, that forces you to be more creative and more inventive. 
And so who knows, maybe, so I, I also double checked, um, this was, uh, uh, published or presented, um, in 1922, um, which is like pretty early on in his career, right? That's, that's, that's fairly like this was because, because I want to say a lot of his stuff was like 26 or 27, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe as like a. All right, you Howard Phillips. I don't know who you are, but if you're going to write for Weird Magazine, uh, you're on a short leash, buddy. So, so who knows? Maybe this is him. Maybe this is him, like, like, like working with only like the tiniest little scraps. And and it is this thing clips along, um, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel rushed either. Um, we we also see another. I, I guess what would be a Lovecraft uh, standard the the unnamed first person narrator who is mm-hmm. who is closely associated with quote unquote the main character um because i'm thinking from beyond i'm thinking the hound mm-hmm. um what are uh, what are some other ones what are some other ones well yeah it's like yeah it's not me specifically that's getting into all this madness but it's my friend who <laughs> <laughs> yeah, saving a Randolph Carter. Up. Like I, I didn't oh, yeah, go there down you go. into yep. the tomb. Like yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so, uh, okay. Well, I guess uh, on that note, because we are, we're just we're clipping along. Let us continue with part two, chapter two, the plague demon. I shall never forget that hideous summer sixteen years ago, when like a noxious afrit from the halls of Eblis, typhoid stalked leeringly through Arkham. It is by that satanic scourge that most recall the year, for truly terror brooded with bat wings over the piles of coffins in the tombs of Christchurch Cemetery. Yet for me there is a greater horror in that time, a horror known to me alone now that Herbert West has, has disappeared. West and I were doing postgraduate work in summer classes at the Medical School of Miskatonic University. And my friend had attended a wide no- had attained a wide notoriety because of his experiments leading toward the revivication of the dead. After the scientific slaughter of uncounted small animals, the freakish work had ostensibly stopped by order of our skeptical dean, Dr. Alan Halsey, though West had continued to perform certain secret tests in his dingy boarding house room, and had on one terrible and an unforgettable occasion taken a human body from its grave in the potter's field to a deserted farmhouse beyond Meadow Hill. I was with him on that odious occasion, and saw him inject into the still veins the elixir which he thought would to some extent restore life's chemical and physical processes. It had ended horribly, in a delirium of fear which we gradually came to attribute to our own overwrought nerves, and West had never afterward been able to shake off a maddening sensation of being haunted and hunted. The body had not quite had not been quite fresh enough. It is obvious that to restore normal mental attributes, a body must be very fresh indeed, and a burning of the old house had prevented us from burying the thing. It would have been better if we could have known it was underground. Drink. Sorry. No, drink. Yep. That's so good. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there we go. Goddamn mustache is too long. Every time. Every time. <laughs> every time. Oh, baby. Yep. <laughs> Future Mark, pre-production mode. Sh- shave your damn mustache. <laughs> All right. 
After that experience, West had dropped his researches for some time. But as the zeal of the born scientist slowly returned, he again became importunate with the college faculty, pleading for the use of a dissecting room of fresh human specimens for his work regarding as overwhelmingly important. His pleas, however, were wholly in vain, for the decision of Dr. Halsey was inflexible, and the other professors all endorsed the verdict of their leader. And that... In the radical theory of reanimation, they saw nothing but the immature vagaries of a youthful enthusiast whose slight form, yellow hair, spectacle blue eyes, and soft voice gave no hint of the supernormal, almost diabolical face, but never elderly. And now Sefton Asylum has had the mishap, and West has vanished. West class disagree clashed disagreeably with Dr. Halsey near the end of the la our last undergraduate term in a wordy dispute that did less credit to him than the kindly dean in a point of courtesy he felt that sorry uh, he felt that it was needlessly and irrationally retarded in his supremely great work a west clashed disagreeably with dr halsey near the end of our last undergraduate term in a wordy dispute that did less credit to him than the kindly dean in a point of courtesy he felt that he was needlessly and irrationally retarded in his supremely great work, a work of which he could of which he could of course conduct to suit himself in later years, but which he wished to begin while still possessed of the exceptional faculties of the university that the tradition-bound elders should ignore his singular results on animals and persist in their denial of the possibility of reanimation was inexpressibly disgusting and almost incomprehensible to a youth of west's logical temperament only greater maturity could help him understand the chronic mental limitations of the professor doctor type the product of generations of pathetic puritanism kindly conscientious and sometimes gentle and amiable yet always narrow intolerant and custom-ridden and lacking in perspective age has more ultimately punished by general ridicule of their intellectual sins sins like ptolemaism calvinism anti-darwinism anti-nietzscheanism and every sort of sabbatarianism and sumptuary legislation west young despite his marvelous scientific acquirements his scant had a scant patience for good dr halsey and his erudite colleagues and nursed an increasing resentment coupled with a desire to prove his theories to these obtuse worthless in some striking and dramatic fashion like most most youths he indulged in elaborate daydreams of revenge triumph and final magnanimous forgiveness and then had come the scourge grinning and lethal from the nightmare caverns of Tartarus. Wes and I had graduated about the time of its beginning, but had remained for additional work at the summer school, so that we were in Arkham when it broke with full demonic fury upon the town. Though not as yet licensed physicians, we now had our degrees, and were pressed frantically into public service as the numbers of the stricken grew. The situation was almost past management, and deaths insured too frequently for the local undertakers fully to handle. Burials without embalming were made in rapid succession, and even the Christ Church Cemetery received, re receiving tomb was crammed with coffins of the unembalmed dead. Uh, this circumstance was not without effect on West, who thought often of the irony of the situation. So many fresh specimens, yet none for his persecuted researches. We were frightfully overworked, and the terrific mental and nervous strain made my friend brood morbidly. But West's gentle enemies were no less harassed with prostrating duties. College had all but closed, and every doctor of the medical faculty was helping to fight the typhoid plague. 
Dr. Halsey in particular had distinguished himself in sacrificing service, applying his extreme skill with wholehearted energy uh, to, to cases which many others shunned because of danger or apparent hopelessness. Before a month was over, the fearless Dean had become a popular hero, though he seemed unconscious of it, uh, yeah, unconscious of his fame as he struggled to keep from collapsing with, phys with physical fatigue and nervous exhaustion. West could not withhold admiration for the fortitude of his foe, but because of this was even more determined to prove to him the truth of his amazing doctrines. Taking advantage of the disorganization of both college work and municipal health regulations, he managed to get a recently deceased body smuggled into the university dissecting room one night, and in my presence injected a new modification of his solution. The thing actually opened its eyes, but only stared at the ceiling with a look of, of soul-petrifying horror before collapsing into an inertness from which nothing could rouse it. West said it was not fresh enough. The hot summer airs uh, does not favor corpses. That time we were almost caught before we incinerated the thing, and West doubted the advisability of repeating his daring misuse of the college laboratory. The peak of the epidemic was reached in August. West and I were almost dead, and Dr. Halsey did die on the 14th. The students all attended the hasty funeral on the 15th and brought an impressive wreath, though the latter was quite overshadowed by the tribute sent by wealthy Arkham citizens and the municipality itself. It was almost a public affair, for the dean had surely been a public benefactor. After the entombment, we were all somewhat depressed and spent the afternoon at the bar in the commercial house, where West, though shaken by the death of his chief opponent, chilled the rest of us with references to his notorious stories. Most of the students went home, or to various duties, and the evening advanced, but West pursued me to aid him in making a night of it. West landlady saw us arrive at his room at about two in the morning with a third man between us, and told her husband that we had evidently dined and wined rather well. <laughs> Apparently, you know what? Drink. We are also drink. making out of it. We drink. Are. We are. We are. Apparently, this acidulous. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, we'll say that. Apparently, this acidulous matron was right, for at about 3 a.m. the whole house was aroused by cries coming from West's room, where they broke down the door to find the two of us unconscious on the blood-stained carpet, beaten, scratched, and mauled, and with even the broken remnants of West's bottles and instruments all around us. Only an open window had told what had become of our assailant and many wondered how he himself had fared after that terrific leap from the second story to the lawn that he must have made. There were some strange garments in the room, but West, upon regaining his consciousness, said they did not belong to the stranger, but were specimens collected for bacteriological analysis in the course of investigations on the transmissions of germ diseases. He ordered them burnt as soon as possible in the, the capacious fireplace. To the police, we were both declared ignorance of our late companion's identity, he was, West nervously added, a congenial stranger, whom we had met in some downtown bar of uncertain location. We had all been rather jovial, and West and I did not wish to have our pugnacious companion hunted down. That same night saw the beginning of a second Arkham Horror. Drink! Drink. The horror to me had eclipsed the plague itself. 
Christ Church Cemetery was the scene of a terrible killing, a watchman having been clawed to death in a manner not only too hideous for description, but raising doubt as to the human agency of the deed. The victim had been seen alive considerably after midnight, and the dawn revealed the unutterable thing. The manager of a circus in the neighboring town of Bolton was questioned, but he swore that no beast had at any time escaped from its cage. Those who found the body noted a trail of blood leading to the receiving tomb, where a small pool of red lay on the concrete just outside the gate. A fainter trail led away toward the wood, but it soon gave out. The next night, devils danced on the roofs of Arkham. An unnatural madness howled in the wind. Through the fevered town had crept a curse which some had said was greater than the plague, and which some were whispered, and which some whispered was the embodied demon soul of the plague itself. Eight houses were entered by a nameless thing which strewed red death in its wake. In all, seventeen maimed and shapeless remnants of bodies were left behind by the voiceless, sadistic monster that crept abroad. A few persons had half seen it in the dark, and said it was white and like a malformed ape or anthropomorphic fiend. It had not left behind quite all that it had attacked, for sometimes it had been hungry. The number it had killed was fourteen. Three of the bodies had been in stricken homes, and had not been alive. On the third night, frantic bands of searchers, led by the police, captured it in a house on Crane Street near the Miskatonic campus. They had organized the quest with care, keeping in touch by means of volunteer telephone stations, and when someone in the college district had reported hearing a scratching at a shuttered window, the net was quickly spread. On the count of the general alarm and precautions, there were only two more victims, and the capture was effected without major casualties. The thing was finally stopped by a bullet, though not a fatal one, and was rushed to the local hospital amidst universal excitement and loathing. For it had been a man. This much was clear despite the nauseous eyes, the voiceless simianism, and the demoniac savagery. They dressed its wounds and carted it to the asylum at Sefton, where it beat its head against the walls of the padded cell for sixteen years, until the recent mishap, when it escaped under circumstances that, like few to, that few like to mention. What had been disgusted the what had most disgusted the searchers of Arkham was the thing they noticed when the monster's face was cleaned, the mocking, unbelievable resemblance to a learned and self-sacrificing martyr who had been entombed but three days before. The late Dr. Alan Halsey, public benefactor and dean of the Medical School of Miskatonic University. To the vanished Herbert West and to me the disgust and horror were supreme. I shudder tonight as I think of it, shudder even more than I did that morning when, when West muttered through his bandages, Damn it, it wasn't quite fresh enough. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> <laughs> so good. So stinking good, man. Um, okay, so, yeah, I mean, what, what to say? Um, what... This, what, this, what's your this, greatest power flex? Using your reanimation serum on the dude who told you you couldn't to reanimate him, and now he's going to live forever pounding his head in a mental asylum. Like, oh my god. Yeah, it's just so... Oh, man. Super power flex. Um, also, this is hitting a bunch of weird resonances with me. Um, being a graduate student... Also, during the time of a plague, <laughs> some like disease that's rocking the the local landscape, uh, 
also being told, no, that's not a good idea for your dissertation. You should, you should probably pick something else. You'll see. One day you'll all see. <laughs> uh, also, by the way, I'm going to like kind of borrow some of these, quote unquote, borrow some of these uh, extra things we have lying around the grad office. You know, no one needs to know about it. You know, I'll just, I'll just take this book and, oh, sure, I'll write my name down on the clipboard and get it back to you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, okay, yeah, so I, I, yes, as you mentioned, there was that, you know, couple of paragraphs that we needed just to catch everybody back up and like, hey, remember last time? Yeah, uh, last week on Herbert West, Reanimator. Um, but even that was like nice and nice and short. And then we finally got into the new, the new development there. Um, yeah. Uh, it's so good it's so quick and I also like the idea that like there's a there's something allegorical in this Mm -hmm. like you know oh what are those clothes oh I grabbed those for bacterial analysis go ahead and just burn them and never minding the fact that like I'm an undergrad in this little boarding house and I could have given you the plague (laughs) whatever you know I know I know it's not the point but that's what he's saying and no one says oh Herbert that's probably irresponsible like but then he literally unleashed like his own little plague in the town okay so um this is gonna be very silly so are you I, I mean Maybe not, because I have my youngest sister, and she and I are 13 years apart, so I got to, you know, kind of kind of keep in touch with, with, with what these kids are talking about. Um, but, Mark, th- there's, a, there's a children's book. Um, I don't know if it's a series or if it's just the one, um, but it's called uh, No David. Uh, and, okay. And it, it, it's this little boy. You know, he's probably, I don't know, three or four or something like that. Um and he and he always gets into trouble and gets into mischief, and it's it's more of a picture book than everything, but it does have like some little words, and um, but the refrain is like the mom is saying like no David, and it's like a picture of him drawing on the wall or no David, and he's like splashing in the bathtub and it's flo- fl- and it's flooding the, the bathroom. No David, <laughs> I think we need to make a Lovecraftian children's book series and this and and this one would be no herbert (laughs) (laughs) no herbert like and there's like a like just pile of like dead dogs and cats and rabbits like no herbert and then he's yeah like passed out in this boarding house and has his like yeah like vials and beakers and uh gas burners no no (laughs) herbert herbert no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no Herbert don't dig up Dr. Halsey don't dig up Dr. Halsey well yeah and that's it and then he's like in front of his like yeah like graduation advisor committee and then he's like he's like yeah stomping off uh, no 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 Herbert <laughs> you can't um, but uh, but yeah it's well, well that and, and also I'm getting and this is more just kind of speaking about Arkham generally which is in love craft country like the setting for a lot of his mm-hmm. stories maybe it was just because we did the true wizards and junji ito uh but i was getting a lot of like this is like arkham is that town arkham is uh what was it like Kurozucho? Oh, 
Like, yeah. is it that the, like, town name? Yeah, um, Car- yeah, Car- Carus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, like, means, like, like Black Spiral Town. Like, that's that's literally what it means. Um, but, yeah, it is. It's like, man, how many horrible things just happen here in, in Arkham? This is, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> maybe... Maybe DeSantis is right. They need to super underfund the colleges. <laughs> right, yeah. Have re- yeah, yeah, right. Uh, Miskatonic <laughs> University is teaching critical reanimation theory. And <laughs> <laughs> it, enough of the CRT. All these... Prof- <laughs> Cthulhu Rolier targeted yeah, yeah, studies. Cthulhu Rolier Cthulhu Rolier theory. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, that's so good. Um, but yeah, there was a lot in part two, chapter two here where I had some special reactions, I guess is just one way to put it. Like, yeah, being being a grad student myself, like, all right, this is this is cutting a little too deep. This is a little too real for me right now. <laughs> feel attacked and seen. Yes, feel attacked and seen. Uh, but, um, but I am, but I am enjoying it and, um, and, and, and yeah, and it's good. It's good that we're coming back to a classic here because boy, isn't it <laughs> boy, isn't it <laughs> better than a hundred years old? Just, yeah, wow. man. Holy cow. Yeah. This yeah. Is a, wow. Yeah. And oh, I would boy. like to take this time to remind listeners that it's better than a hundred years old. So yeah. don't come at me with what happens in the next two chapters. <laughs> it's okay this is this is well before well before all of this stuff um <laughs> uh well i i have i have uh mixed my own secret elixir and i've resupplied on that which is to say i uh went and got some more of that zombie because i made i ended up making way too much of this like <laughs> Whatever, yeah, the recipe that you had, I was trying to do the math and convert from metric to freedom units. Um, and yeah, I think I made like a half a gallon of zombie, <laughs> zombie cocktail. <laughs> so it's going to be a good night and we'll see what tomorrow's like. But for right now, I'm doing okay. Um, what about you, man? How How is your wizard's mug looking? Uh, yeah, I refilled it and I remixed it. And this time, because you said you would put mint in yours, because your Mrs. Wizard went above and beyond, well, I put mint in mine too, in the form of creme de menthe. So we'll see oh, just okay. what happens here. <coughs> I sent you a picture. It looks like gross turf color green, <laughs> like astro turf. And it's oh, I wish it yeah, to yeah. glow like um, you know, fucking that is Dean Stockwell's. Serum, right. whatever the hell it is, and the thing. Yeah, but. yeah, Dean Halsey. Yeah, that's that's probably yeah what what his complexion looked like um, after after his murderous rampage. <laughs> anyway, it, cheers, buddy. Cheers. Fuck me if that doesn't somehow make it a little bit better. I don't know. Okay, well, and it wouldn't be a two wizards episode, and specifically a two wizards Lovecraft episode if. One of us wasn't drinking something disgusting, so <laughs> um, I just—I didn't have the heart to drink four loco. You know, I just—yeah—I'm older. That, I'm older now than we started this, and that's a young man's game that we should only do when we are in the same tower together. Yes, I fully agree with that because we can 
kind of hold each other to account, <laughs> be be responsible, kind of sort of. Uh, <laughs> but uh, accountability buddies, accountability wizards, accountability wizards, exactly. Uh, well, hey man, uh, I guess on that note, shall we continue with Herbert West Reanimator? And chapter six, no, not chapter six, because it has six, God, fucking zombies. (laughs) Chapter three, six shots by midnight, which is also what Mark and I are going to do. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we are. Join us on our live stream, Two Wizards After Dark. Two Wizards After Dark. It is uncommon to fire all six shots of a revolver with great suddenness when one would probably be sufficient. When one would probably be sufficient. But many things in the life of Herbert West were uncommon. It is, for instance, not often that a young physician leaving college is obliged to conceal the principles which guide his selection of a home and office. Yet that was the case with Herbert West. When he and I obtained our degrees at the, middle school, at the medical school of Miskatonic University and sought to relieve our poverty by setting up as general practitioners, we took great care not to say that we chose our house because it was fairly well isolated and as near as possible to the potter's field. Reticence such as this is seldom without a cause, nor indeed was ours, for our requirements were those resulting from a life work distinctly unpopular. Outwardly, we were doctors only. But beneath the surface were aims of far greater and more terrible moment. For the essence of Herbert West's existence was a quest amid black and forbidden realms of the unknown, in which he had hoped to uncover the secret of life and restore to perpetual animation the graveyard's cold clay. Such a quest demands strange materials, among them fresh human bodies. And in order to keep supplied with these indispensable things, one must live quietly and not far from a place of informal. West and I had met in college, and I had been the only one to sympathize with his hideous experiments. Gradually, I had come to be his inseparable assistant, and now that we were out of college, we had to keep together. It was not easy to find a good opening for two doctors and company, but finally the influence of the university secured us a practice in Bolton, a factory town near Arkham, the seat of the college. The Bolton Worsted Mills are the largest in the Miskatonic Valley, and their polyglot employees are never popular as patients with the other local physicians. We chose our house with the greatest care, seizing at a lot on a rather run-down cottage near the end of Pond Street, five numbers from the closest neighbor, and separated from the local potter's field only by a stretch of meadowland, bisected by a narrow neck of rather dense forest which lies to the north. The distance was greater than we had wished, and we could only we could get no nearer without we could get sorry we could get no nearer house without going on the other side of the field, wholly out of factory district. We were not much displeased, however, since there were no people between us and our sinister supply their sinister source of supplies. The walk was a trifle long, but we could haul our silent spe- specimens undisturbed. On practice, or Jesus Christ, here we go, Josh. Already zombies. <laughs> Alrighty, zombies. <laughs> Our practice was surprisingly large at the very first, large enough to please the most doctors, and large enough to prove a bore and a burden to students whose real interests lie elsewhere. The mill hands of somewhat turbulent inclinations, and besides their many natural needs, their frequent clashings and stabbing affrays gave us plenty to do. But what actually absorbed our minds were the secret laboratory we had fitted up to the cellar, the laboratory with the long table, solution 
long table under electric lights, where in the small hours of the morning we often injected West's various solutions into the veins of the things we dragged from the potter's field. West was experimenting madly to find something which would start a man's vital motions anew, after they had been stopped by the thing we called death. Bud had encountered the most ghastly obstacles. The solution had to be differently compounded for different types, and what would serve for guinea pigs would not serve for human beings. And different human, species, and different human specimens required large modifications. The bodies had to be exceedingly fresh, or the slight decomposition of brain tissue would render perfect reanimation impossible. Indeed, the greatest problem was to get them fresh enough. West had had horrible experiences during his secret college researches with corpses of doubtful vintage. Oh, God, drink again! Drink again! <laughs> Cemeteries clay, doubtful vintage. Mm. The results of partial... <clears throat> excuse me. The results of partial or imperfect animation were much more hideous than were the total failures. And we were both fearsome... And we both held fearsome recollections of such things. Ever since our first demoniac session in the deserted farmhouse on Meadow Hill in Arkham, we had felt a brooding menace. And West, though a calm, blonde, blue-eyed, scientific animaton in most aspects, often confessed to a shuddering sensation of stealthy pursuit. He half felt that he was followed. A psychological delusion of shaken nerves, enhanced by the undeniably disturbing fact that at least one of our reanimated specimens was still alive. A frightful, carnivorous thing in a padded cell at, at Sefton. Then there was another, our first, whose exact fate we had never learned. We had fair luck with specimens in, Bo in, in Bolton, much better than in Arkham. We had not been settled a week before we got an accident victim on the very first night of burial and made it open its eyes with an amazingly rational expression before the solution failed. It had lost an arm. If it had been a perfect body, we might have succeeded better. Between then and the next January, we secured three more, one total failure, one case of marked muscular motion, and one rather shivery thing. It rose of itself and uttered a sound. Then came a period when luck was poor, internments fell off, and those that did occur were of specimens either too diseased or too maimed for use. We kept track of all the deaths and their circumstances with, system with systematic care. One March night, however, we unexpectedly obtained a specimen which did not come from the potter's field. In Bolton, the prevailing spirit of Puritanism had outlawed the sport of boxing, with the usual result. Surreptitious and ill-conducted bouts among the mill workers were common, and occasionally professional talent of low grade was imported. This late winter night there had been such a match, evidently with disastrous results. Such two timorous poles had come to us, incoherently whispered entreaties to attend to a very secret and desperate case. We followed them to an abandoned barn where the remnants of the crowd frightened foreigners sorry where the remnants of the crowd of frightened foreigners were watching a silent black form on the floor the match had been between k between kid o'brien a lubberly and now quaking youth of with the most unhibernian hook-nosed and buck robinson the harlem smoke the black man had been knocked out and the moments and a moment's examination showed us that he would permanently remain so he was a loathsome gorilla thing, with abnormally long arms, which I could not help calling four legs, and a face that conjured up the thoughts of unspeakable Congo secrets and tom-tom poundings under an eerie moon. Jesus Christ, Lovecraft, Green. Yep. Remember, kids, I said, don't get mad at me for what's about to happen. 
don't <laughs> don't shoot the wizards because you're gonna unload all six rounds when you only need one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, don't shoot them. That'll just make them mad. No, don't shoot them. <laughs> the body must have looked worse in life, but the world holds many ugly things. Fear was upon the whole pitiful crowd, for they did not know what the law would ex- exact of them if the affair was not hushed up. And they were grateful when West, in spite of my involuntary shudders, offered to get rid of the thing, quietly, for a purpose I knew all too well. There was a bright moonlight over the snowless landscape, but we dressed the thing and carried it home between us through the deserted streets and meadows, as we had carried a similar thing thing one horrible night in Arkham. We approached the house from the field in the rear, took the specimen in the back door and down the cellar stairs, and prepared for it for the unusual experiment. Our fear of the police was absurdly great, though we had timed our trip to avoid the solitary patrolman of that section. The result was wearily anticlimactic. Ghastly as our prize appeared, it was wholly unresponsive to every solution we injected in its black arm. Solutions prepared from experience with white specimens only. So that so as the hour grew dangerously near to dawn, we did as we had done with the others, dragged the thing across the meadows to the neck of the woods near the potter's field, and buried it there in the best sort of grave the frozen ground would furnish. The grave was not very deep, but fully as good as that of the previous specimen, the thing which had risen of itself and uttered a sound. In the light of our dark lanterns, we carefully covered it with leaves and dead vines, fairly certain that the police would never find it in a forest so dim and dense. The next day, I was increasingly apprehensive about the police, for a patient brought rumors of a suspected fight and death. West had still another source of worry, for he had been called in the afternoon to a case which ended very threateningly. An Italian woman had become hysterical over her missing child, a lad of five who had strayed off early in the morning and failed to appear for dinner. An Italian woman had become hysterical over her missing child, a lad of five who had strayed off early in the morning and failed to appear for dinner and had developed symptoms highly alarming in view of an always weak heart. It was a very foolish hysteria, for the boy had often run away before, but Italian peasants are exceedingly superstitious, and this woman seemed as much harassed by omens as by facts. About seven o'clock in the evening she had died, and her frantic husband had made a frightful scene in his efforts to kill Wes. Yeah, holy, okay, holy shit, sorry. Woo! No, you're good. That took a jump. And her frantic husband had made made a frightful scene in his efforts to kill West, whom he wildly blamed for not saving her life. Friends had held him when he drew a stiletto, but West departed amidst his inhuman shrieks, curses, and oaths of vengeance. In his latest affliction, the fellow seemed to have forgotten his child, who was missing as the night advanced. There was some talk of searching the woods, but most of the family's friends were busy with the dead woman and the screaming man. Altogether, the nervous strain upon West must have been tremendous. Thoughts of the police and of the mad Italian both weighed heavily. We retired about eleven, but I did not sleep well. Bolton had a surprisingly good police force for a small town, and I could not help but fearing the mess which would ensue if the affair of the night before were ever tracked down. It might <coughs> it might mean the end of our all our local work, and perhaps prison for both West and me. I did not like the rumors of fright which floated about. After the clock had struck three, the moon shone in my eyes, but I turned over without raising to pull down the shade, and then came the steady rattling at the back door. I lay still and somewhat dazed, but before long heard West, 
but before long heard West's rap on my door. He was clad in a dressing gown and slippers, and had ha and had and had in his hands a revolver and an electric flashlight. From the revolver, I knew that he was thinking more of the crazed Italian than that of the police. We better both go, he whispered. It wouldn't do not to answer it anyway, and it may be a patient, and it would be likely one of those fools to try the back door. So we both went down the stairs on a tiptoe, with fear partially just with fear partly justified, and partly that which comes only from the soul of the weird small hours. The rattling continued, growing somewhat louder. When we reached the door, I cautiously unbolted it and threw it open. As the moon streamed revealingly down on the form silhouetted there, West did a peculiar thing. Despite the obvious danger of attracting noise and bringing down on our head the dread police investigation, a thing which, after all, was mercifully averted by the relative isolation of our college, my friend suddenly, excitedly, and unnecessarily emptied all six chambers of his revolver into the nocturnal visitor. For that visitor was neither Italian nor policeman. Looming hideously against a spectral moon was a gigantic misshapen thing that not to be imagined save in nightmares. A glassy-eye, ink-black apparition nearly on all floors, covered in bits of mold, leaves, and vines, foul with caked blood, and having between its glistening snow-white teeth, terrible cylindrical object terminating in a tiny hand. Ah! <laughs> oh, man, okay, yeah. Can you handle the fear and the horror? I, uh, I'm starting to think this Herbert West guy, he should probably stop trying to reanimate people. <laughs> Call me, you know, yeah. I'm usually not one to uh, halt the progress of science, but, but in this case, you know, maybe, maybe it's time to move on to something different. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, sure, you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet, but... You know. Well, and as uh, yeah, if I if I can paraphrase, if I can borrow um, a turn of phrase from one of our great orators of the 21st century, George W. Bush, um, create one cannibalistic reanimated corpse, shame on you. <laughs> create a second cannibalistic undead reanimated corpse, you. You can't fool me. <laughs> <laughs> can't get fooled next time. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think it's time, man. I think it's time. Got it. Got to. Got to hang it up, so to speak. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> and yes. I, okay. Well, just also very, very quickly. Um, if this is your first time, dear, sweet, gentle listener, if this is your first time. Hearing Mark and I read Lovecraft, you may be telling yourself, "Ooh, man, this third chapter here—it had some kind of a uh, problematic things to say about different ethnicities." Well, well yes. Again, it was a hundred years ago. It's Lovecraft. Uh, just I also it, like how it's everybody. He talks shit about the poles. He talks yeah. shit about the unhy or the what. The the unhibernian hooked nose of the Irishman, like yeah. yes, the yeah, the black guy just... gets it the worst. But like, oh, all Italians are paranoid and violent psychopaths, and the guy coming in with a stiletto, like literally, I'm gonna cut you good, you moon face prick. What'd you do to my wife? Like yes, <laughs> but it's all of them. It's anybody who's not exactly the perfect Howard Phillips 
blend of only white people from a specific group of people from Providence, Rhode Island. And right. there's yeah. a part of me that can always appreciate it because it's just so goddamn goofy. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Exactly. It is, it is so, so over the top. And yeah, just don't, just don't, just don't read. Look, this isn't the Barbie movie. Okay. Don't, don't be reading too much into this. <laughs> Or read a lot into it and realize that we were different a hundred years ago and yeah, to not talk about these too. things is to forget about these things and that's worse than, you know, mentioning yeah, right. it passingly in a bit of weird fiction. Yeah, and if you exactly. can't handle us at our reanimator, well, you don't deserve us at our, I don't know, what was a really good one we just did? Trojan War that's coming out. Yeah, hint, exactly. Hint, hint. Yeah, hint, hint, hint. Um, well, and we also get to see a little more of the expanded Lovecraft country because like, like good college kids that actually get kicked out of their alma mater and they have to make it in the real world. Um, yeah, they (laughs) head over to Bolton, which is, which is, yeah, also, also features, um, in, in many a Lovecraft story. Mm Um, but, uh, but, uh, uh, I don't know. This one was really kind of short. I don't know if there's too much more to uh, unpack with it. Um, so I guess, shall we just move along to chapter four, part four, the scream of the dead? Putting on the Ritz! <laughs> <laughs> the scream of a dead man. gave to me that acute and added horror of Dr. Herbert West, which harassed the later years of our companionship. It it is natural that such a thing as a dead man's scream should give horror, for it is obviously not a pleasing or ordinary occurrence. But I was used to similar experiences, hence suffered on this occasion only because of a particular circumstance. And as I have implied, it was not of the dead man himself that I became afraid." Herbert West, whose associate and assistant, and assistant I was, possessed scientific interests far beyond the usual routine of a village uh, physician. That was why, when establishing his practice in Bolton, he had chosen an isolated house near the potter's field. Briefly and brutally stated, West's sole absorbing interest was the secret study of the phenomena of life and its cessation, leading toward the reanimation of the dead through injections of an excitant solution. For this ghastly experimenting, it was necessary to have a constant supply of very fresh human bodies. Very fresh because even the least decay hopelessly damaged the brain structure. And human because we found that the solution had had to be compounded differently for different types of organisms. Scores of rabbits and guinea pigs have been killed and treated, but their trail was a blind one. West had never fully succeeded because he had never been able to secure a corpse sufficiently fresh. What he wanted were bodies from which vitality had only just departed. Bodies with every cell intact and capable of receiving again the impulse toward that mode of motion called life. There was hope that this second and artificial life might be made, per- might be made perpetual by repetitions of the injection. But we had learned that an ordinary natural life would not respond to the action. To establish the artificial motion, natural life must be extinct. The specimens must be fresh, but genuinely dead. 
The awesome quest had begun when West and I were students at Miskatonic University Medical School in Arkham, vividly conscious for the first time of the thoroughly mechanical nature of life. But West looked scarcely on an, a day older now. He was small, blonde, clean-shaven, soft-voiced, and spectacled, and had only an occasional flash of a cold blue eye to tell of the hardening and growing fanaticism of his character under the pressure of his terrible investigations. Our experiences had often been hideous in the extreme, the results of defective reanimation, when lumps of graveyard clay had been galvanized into morbid, unnatural, and brainless motion by various modifications of the vital, sol vital solution. One thing had uttered a nerve-shattering scream, the other had risen violently, beaten us both to unconscious, and run amuck in a shocking way before it could be placed behind asylum bars. Still, another loathsome African monstrosity had crawled out of a shallow grave and done a deed. West had to shoot that object. We could not get bodies fresh enough to show any trace of reason when animated, so had perforce created nameless horrors. It was disturbing to think that one, perhaps two of our monsters still lived, and that thought haunted us shadowingly, till finally West disappeared under frightful circumstances. But at the time, the scream in the cellar laboratory of the isolated Bolton College, our fears were subordinate to the anxiety of extremely fresh for excuse me, our anxiety for extremely fresh specimens. West was more avid than I, so that almost seemed to me he. Jesus Christ, so that it almost seemed to me that he looked half covetously at a very healthy living physique. It was in July 1910 that the bad luck regarding specimens began to turn. I had been on a long visit to my parents in Illinois, and upon my return found West in a state of singular elation. He had, he told me excitedly, in all likelihood solved the problem of freshness through an approach from an entirely new angle, that of artificial preservation. I had known that he was working on a new and highly unusual embalming compound, and was not surprised that it had turned out well. But until he explained the details, I was rather puzzled as to how such a compound could help in our work, since the objectionable staleness of the specimens was largely due to delay occurring before we secured them. This, I now saw, West had clearly recognized creating his embalming compound for future rather than immediate use, and trusting to fate to supply again some very recent and unburied corpse, as it had years before when we obtained the negro killed in the Bolton prize fight. At last fate had been kind, so that on this occasion there lay in the secret cellar laboratory a corpse whose decay could not by any possibility have begun. What would happen on reanimation, and whether we could hope for a revival of mind and reason, West did not venture to predict. The experiment would be a landmark in our studies, and he had saved the new body for my return, so that both might share the spectacle in a custom fashion. West told me how he had attained the specimen. It had been a vigorous man, a well-dressed stranger just off the train on his way to transact some business with the Bolton Worsted Mills. The walk through the town had been long, and by the time the stranger paused at our cottage to ask the way to the factories, his heart had become greatly overtaxed. He had refused a stimulant and had suddenly dropped dead only a moment later. The body, as might be expected, seemed to West a heaven-sent gift. In his brief conversation, the stranger had made it clear that he was unknown in Bolton, and a search of his pockets subsequently revealed him to be one Robert Levitt of St. Louis apparently without a family to make instant inquiries about his disappearance. 
If this man could not be restored to life, no one would know of our experiment. We buried our materials in a dense strip of woods between the house and the potter's field. If, on the other hand, he could be restored, our fame would be brilliantly and perpetually established. So without delay, West had injected into the body's wrist the compound which would hold it fresh for use after my arrival. The matter of the presumably weak heart, to which my mind imperiled the success of our experiment, did not appear to trouble West extensively. He hoped at last to obtain what, had never, what he had never obtained before, a rekindled spark of reason and perhaps a normal living creature. So on the night of July 18th, 1910, Herbert West and I stood in the cellator in the wow, cellatory. <laughs> stood in the cellular laboratory and gazed at the white silent figure beneath the dazzling arc light. The embalming compound had worked uncannily well, for I stared fascinatedly at the sturdy frame that had laid 2 weeks without stiffening. I was moved to seek West's assurance that the thing was really dead. The assurance he gave readily enough, reminding me that the reanimating solution was never used without careful tests as to life, since it could have no effect if any of the original vitality were present. As Wes proceeded to take preliminary steps, I was impressed by the vast intricacy of the new experiment, an intricacy so vast that he could trust no hand less delicate than his own. Forbidding me to touch the body, he first injected the drug into the wrist just beside the place his needle had punctured when injecting the embalming compound. This, he said, was to neutralize the compound and to release the system to a normal relaxation so that the, animating, the reanimating solution might work freely when injected. Slightly later, when, chain, when a change in gentle tremor seemed to affect the dead limbs, West stuffed a pillow-like object violently over the twitching face, not withdrawing it until the corpse appeared quiet, quiet and ready for our attempt at reanimation. The pale enthusiast now applied some last perfunctory tests for absolute lifelessness, withdrew satisfied, and finally injected into the left arm an accurately measured amount of the vital elixir prepared during the afternoon with great care that we had used since college our college days and our feats were not, were new and groping i cannot express the wild breathless suspense which we waited for our results on that first really fresh specimen the first we could reasonably expect to open its lips in rational speech perhaps to tell of what had it had seen beyond the unfathomable abyss West was a materialist, believing no soul and attributing all working consciousness to bodily phenomena. Consequently, he looked for no revolution, er, revelation of hideous secrets from gulfs and caverns beyond death's barrier. I did not wholly disagree with him theoretically, yet held a vague instinctive remnants of primitive faith of my forefathers, so that I could not help eyeing the corpse with a certain amount of awe and terrible expectation. Besides, I could not extract from my memory that hideous, inhuman shriek we heard in the night we tried our first experiment in the deserted farmhouse at Arkham. Very little time had elapsed before I saw the attempt was not a total failure. A touch of color came to the cheeks hitherto chalk-white, and spread out in a curious ample stubble of a sandy beard. West, who had his hand on the pulse of the left wrist, suddenly nodded significantly, and almost simultaneously a mist appeared on the mirror inclined above the body's mouth. There followed a spasmodic, muscular motion, and the audible breathing and visible motion of the chest. I looked at the closed eyelids, and thought I detected a quivering. The eyes opened, showing eyes which were gray, calm, and alive, but still unintelligent and not even curious. 
In a moment of fantastic whim, I whispered questions to the reddening ears, questions of other worlds of which the memory might still be present. Subsequent terror drove them from my mind, but I think the last one, which I repeated, was, Where have you been? I do not know, I, I do not yet know whether I was answered or not, for no sound came from the well-shaped mouth. But I do know that at that moment, I firmly thought the thin lips moved silently, forming syllables. I would have vocalized as only now if that phrase had possessed any sense or relevancy. At that moment, as I say, I was elated with the conviction that the one great goal had been attained, and that for the first time a reanimated corpse had uttered distinct words impelled by actual reason. In the next moment there was no doubt about the triumph, no doubt that the solution had truly accomplished, at least temporarily, its full mission of restoring rational and articulate life to the dead. But in that triumph there came to me the greatest of all horrors, not horror of the thing that spoke, but of the deed that I had witnessed and of the man with whom my professional fortunes were joined. For that very fresh body, at last writhing into full and terrifying consciousness with eyes dilated at the, moment, at the memory of its last scene on earth, threw out its frantic hands in a life and death struggle with the air, and suddenly collapsing into a second and final dissolution from which there could be no return, screamed out the cry that will ring eternally in my aching brain. Help! Keep off, you cursed little toe-headed fiend! Keep that damned needle away from me! Dun dun! Ra 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 ra! Herbert West killed a dude. He killed a dude. A little toe-headed. And then toe brought him back to life. Killed a dude and then brought him back to life. You little toe-headed, toe-headed prick! <laughs> you toe-headed prick! You think you can just paralyze me for two weeks? <laughs> so he's not only the reanimator he's also the suspendinator yeah the suspend yeah the the pause pause animator <laughs> i like the escalation though i like that it's not working and well i need it really 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 fresh all yeah. right. Well, I guess I'll just get it myself. That's yeah. If you want a job done right, you got to do it yourself, kind of a thing. Um, you can't wait for a boxer to get accidentally killed. You can't wait for your despised ac academic advisor to suddenly die. Um, <laughs> no, you got to kill a dude and then just keep him in state. Like, well, not not in stasis, but keep him fresh. With your new miracle serum, your new miracle elixir. Um, come around here, gather around now and see here, Dr. Herbert West's, West's miracle pausinator. <laughs> <laughs> keeps keeps bodies fresh for, for weeks at a time. Come around now. Made with only the finest New England snake oil. <laughs> That good Occam water. Mm -mm. <laughs> Tastes me go delicious. <laughs> Don't you know they just dammed up the the Miskatonic River there? <laughs> <laughs> Using pure, pure Miskatonic dam water. <laughs> Damn it, you won't believe. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Also, poor. Uh, oh God, where was it? Uh, da, 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 Robert Levitt. 
Yep. Robert Leverett of St. Louis. Meet me in St. Louis, where I'm a reanimated corpse. (laughs) (laughs) But not the Ritz! Also, I I just had to look up because um, Lovecraft generally, you know, keeps... He withholds a lot of details from his story. His stories, you know, he doesn't want to pin anything down. Um, But because he mentioned July 18th, uh, 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, at least according to Wikipedia, what happened on July 18th, 1910, uh, which was a Monday, uh, the towns of Klokolan, South Africa, and Kanastin, Saskatchewan, Canada, were incorporated. So good. Oh, okay. Uh, Mamadou Dia, the first prime minister of Senegal, uh, was born on this day uh, and uh, died on this day was one Samuel Gilmore, U.S. representative from Louisiana. Okay. And the successful question mark reanimation of Robert Levitt of St. Louis in Bolton, <laughs> Massachusetts. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but yes, things are clearly, yeah, clearly not going well for Herbert. Uh, uh, fella can't even visit his family in Illinois for a couple weeks without his associate and assistant. And well, no, he's the assistant, associate yeah, and yeah, colleague, yeah. Uh, turning to homicide. <laughs> <laughs> the the death of a salesman, one might say, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> God. No, I want Zombies. to see it. I want to see that so good. Yeah, instead of Biff and Happy, it's uh... <laughs> Nyarlathotep and... <laughs> you can't just reanimate a man and then throw the body away. A man is more than that, damn it. <laughs> sure thing, Pop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I had a job interview. I was going to be the town physician in Bolton, and I stole this pen. Why did I steal the pen? Let's go be ranchers in Wyoming. <laughs> you and me, unnamed narrator. Let's just. Then <laughs> <laughs> some alternate reality where Herbert West doesn't die the way that he dies. Mm. Um, he, he commits suicide, you know, the Billy Lo- or the William yeah, Logan right. way. And that's the great irony is he could reanimate everything else, but he couldn't reanimate himself. <laughs> Just couldn't reanimate himself. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that right there shows the hollow promise of the American dream. <laughs> Arthur Miller approves. <laughs> Arthur Miller was more influenced by Lovecraft than Stephen King, some have, have said. Yeah. Me, some, right some now, said. just now, I heard it said. Just now, I heard it said. <laughs> uh, okay, well, we are also, this is the penultimate chapter here. Chapter 5, Part 5. The Horror from the Shadows. Many men have related hideous things not mentioned in print which happened on the battlefields of the Great War. Some of these things have made me faint. 
Others have convulsed me with devastating nausea, while still others have made me tremble and look behind me in the dark. Yet despite the worst of them, I believe I can myself relate the most hideous thing of all, the shocking, the unnatural, the unbelievable horror from the shadows. In 1915, I was a physician with the rank of first lieutenant in a Canadian regiment in Flanders, one of many Americans to precede the government itself into the gigantic struggle. I had not entered the army on my own initiative, but rather as a natural result of the enlistment of the man whose indispensable assistant I was, the celebrated Boston surgical specialist, Dr. Herbert West. Dr. West had been avid for a chance to serve as surgeon in a great war, and when the chance had come, he carried me with him almost against my will. There were reasons why I would have been glad to let the war separate us, reasons why I found the practice of medicine and the companionship of West more and more irritating. But when he had gone to Ottawa and through a colleague's influence secured a medical commission as major, I could not resist the imperious persuasion of one determined that I should accompany him in my usual capacity. When I say that Dr. West was avid to serve in battle, I do not mean to imply that he was either naturally warlike or anxious for the safety of civilization. Always an ice-cold intellectual machine, slight, blonde, blue-eyed, and spectacled, I think he secretly sneered at my occasional martial enthusiasms and censures of supine neutrality. There was, however, something he wanted in the embattled Flanders, and in order to secure it, he had to assume the military exterior. What he wanted was not was not a thing which many persons want, but something connected with the peculiar branch of medical science which he had chosen quite clandestinely to follow, and in which he had achieved amazing and occasionally hideous results. It, in fact, nothing more or less than that abundant supply of freshly killed men in every stage of dismemberment. Herbert West needed fresh bodies because of his life work was reanimation of the dead. This work was not, own, was not known to the fashionable clientele who had swiftly built up his fame after his arrival in Boston, but it was only too well known to me, who had been his closest friend and sole assistant since our, the old days in Miskatonic University Medical School at Arkham. It was these college days that he began his terrible experiments, first on animals and then on human bodies, shockingly obtained. There was a solution which he injected into the veins of dead things, and if they were fresh enough, they responded in strange ways. He had much trouble in discovering the proper formula, for each type of organism was found to need stimulus especially adapted to it. Terror stalked him when he reflected on its partial failures. Nameless things rustling around in imperfect solutions, or from bodies insufficiently fresh. A certain number of these failures had remained alive. One was, in a, one was in an asylum, while the others had vanished. And he thought conceivably yet virtually impossible eventualities. He had shivered beneath his, usually, his usual stolidity. West had soon learned the absolute freshness of the prime requisite for useful specimens, and accordingly resorted to, fright, resorted to frightful and unnatural experiments in body snatching. In college, and during our early practice together in the factory town of Bolton, my attitude toward him had been largely one of fascinated admiration. But as his boldness and methods grew, I began to develop a nightmare sensation in the cellar laboratory, when I had learned a certain specimen had been a living body when he had secured it. That was the first time he had ever been able to revive the quality of rational thought in a corpse.
and his success obtained such loathsome cost had completely hardened him. Of his methods in the intervening five years, I dare not speak. I was held to him by sheer force of fear, and, and witnessed sights that no human tongue could repeat. Gradually I came to find Herbert West himself more horrible than anything he did. That was when it dawned on me, on me that his once normal scientific zeal for prolonging life had suddenly degenerated into a mere morbid and ghoulish curiosity and secret sense of charnel picturesqueness. That's a good word, picturesqueness. Yeah, it is. His interest became a hellish and perverse addiction to the repellently and fiendishly abnormal. He gloated calmly over artificial monstrosities which would make most healthy men drop dead from fright and disgust. He became, behind his pallid intellectuality, a fastidious Baudelaire of physical experiment, a languid elegalibus of the tombs. Dangers he met unflinchingly. Crimes he committed unmoved. I think the climax came when he had proved his point that rational light could be restored, and had sought new worlds to conquer by experimenting on the reanimation of detached parts of bodies. He had wild and original ideas on the independent vital properties of organic cells and nerve tissue separated from natural physiological systems, and achieved some hideous preliminary results in the form of never-dying, artificially nourished tissue obtained from the nearly hatched eggs of an indescribable tropical reptile. Two biological points he was exceedingly anxious to settle. First, whether any amount of consciousness and rational action be possible without the brain, proceeding from, from the spinal cord and various nerve centers. And second, whether any kind of ethereal, intangible relation distinct from the material cells may exist to link the surgically separated parts of what has previously been a single living organism. All this research work required a prodigious supply of freshly slaughtered human flesh. And that was why Herbert West had entered the Great War. The phantasmal, unmentionable thing occurred one midnight late in March 1915 in a field hospital behind the lines of St. Eloy. I wonder even now if it could have been other than a demoniac dream of delirium. West had a private laboratory in an east room of the barn-like temporary edifice, assigned him on his plea that he was devising new and radical methods for the treatment of hitherto hopeless cases of maiming. There he worked like a butcher in the midst of his gory wares. I could never get used to the levity with which he handled and classified certain things. At times he actually did perform marvels of surgery for the soldiers. But his chief delights were of a less public and philanthropic kind, requiring many explanations of sounds which seemed peculiar even amidst that babble of the damned. Among these sounds were frequent revolver shots, surely not uncommon on a battlefield, but distinctly uncommon in a hospital. Dr. West's reanimated spe uh, specimens were not meant for long existence or a large audience. God, drink. God. Besides human tissue, West uh, employed much of the reptile embryo tissue, which he had cultivated with such singular results. It was better than human material for maintaining life in organless fragments. And that was now my friend's chief activity. In a dark corner of the laboratory, over a queer incubating burner, he kept a large covered vat full of this reptilian cell matter, which multiplied and grew puffily and hideous. Drink again. God, drink again. Drink again. 
I used to play bass for Puffly and Hideously. Yeah, Puffly and Hideously. <laughs> LSP's new punk band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the night of which I speak, we had a splendid new specimen. A man at once physically powerful and of such high mentality that a sensitive nervous system was assured. It was rather ironic, for he was an officer who had helped West to his commission, and who was now to have been our associate. Moreover, he had past secretly studied the theory of reanimation to some extent under West. Sir Major Eric Moreland Clapham Lee, DSO, was the greatest surgeon in our division, and had been hastily assigned to St. Eloy's sector when news of heavy fighting reached headquarters. He had come in an aeroplane, excuse me, he had come in an aeroplane piloted by the intrepid Lieutenant Ronald Hill, only to be shot down when directly over his destination. The fall had been spectacular and awful. Hill was unrecognizable afterward, but the wreck yielded the greatest up the great mm, but the wreck yielded up the greatest surgeon in a nearly decapitated but otherwise intact c- condition. West greedily seized the lifeless thing, which had once been his friend and fellow scholar, and I shuddered when he finished severing the head and placed it in a hell- in a hellish vat of the pulpy reptile tissue to preserve it for future experiments and proceeded to treat the decapitated body on his operating table. Injecting new blood joined certain veins, arteries, and nerves at the headless neck and closed the ghastly aperture with engrafted skin from an unidentified specimen which had borne the officer's uniform. I knew what he wanted to see if the highly organized body could exhibit without a head any signs of mental life, or which had distinguished Sir Eric Moreland Clapham Lee. Once a student of reanimation, the silent trunk now gruesomely called upon to exemplify it. I can still see Herbert West under the the sinister electric light as he injected the reanimating solution into the arm of the headless body. The scene I cannot describe. I should faint if I tried. For there is a madness in a room full of classified charnel things, with blood and lesser human debris almost ankle-deep on a slimy floor, with hideous reptilian abnormalities sprouting and bubbling and baking over a winking bluish-green specter of dim flame in the far corner of black shadow. The specimen, as West had repeatedly observed, had a splendid nervous system. Much was expected of it, and as a few twitching motions began to appear, I could see the feverish interest on West's face. He was ready, I think, to see proof of his increasingly strong opinion that consciousness, reason, and personality can can exist independently of the brain, that man is no central connective spirit, but merely a machine of nervous matter, each section more or less complete in itself. In one triumphant demonstration, West was about to relegate the mystery of life to a category of myth. The body now twitched more vigorously, and beneath our avid eyes, commenced to heave in frightful kinds of writhing. Then, the headless thing threw out its arms in a gesture which was unmistakably one of desperation. An intelligent desperation, apparently sufficient to prove every theory of Herbert West. Certainly, the nerves were recalling the man's last act in life, the struggle to get free of the falling aeroplane. What followed, I shall never positively know. It may have been wholly an hallucination from the shock caused at, by, at that instant by the sudden and complete destruction of the building in a cataclysm of German shellfire. Who can gainsay it, since West and I were the only proved survivors? West liked to think that before his recent disappearance, that there were times where he could not. For it was queer that we both had the same hallucination. 
The hideous occurrence itself was very simple, notable only for what it implied. The body on the table had risen with a blind and terrible groping, and we had heard a sound. I should not call that sound a voice, for it was too awful. And yet its timbre was not the most awful thing about it. Neither was its message. It had merely screamed, Jump, Ronald! For God's sake, jump! The awful thing was its source, for it had come from the large covered vat in that ghoulish corner of crawling black shadows. Um, I know this is completely inappropriate for the um, <laughs> utterly horrific scene that you and I just read. Um, but my immediately thoughts returned to the head in a jar of Ronald Reagan and the headless body of Spiro Agnew. In... <laughs> Get him, headless body of Agnew. <laughs> but again, right? Like, I know we made a big deal of this, um... With uh, the Whisperer in Darkness, that Lovecraft was one of the first to like start the trope of like the heads in jars, um, mm. but here it is again. It, it, granted, the, the jar here is like a vat of puffy, of puffily and hideously reptilian stem cell goo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But also, yeah, here's a body that is that is walking about without a head and groping about and reacting like that. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it, though. I like that, you know, despite, you know, totally separate from everything we know about, you know, medical science, sci- medical science. Can't say it. Medical science, Jesus Christ, zombies! Like <laughs> it, the the headless body or the you know the disembodied head can still scream. It still has vocal cords, still mm-hmm. has lungs that can produce the you know the wind to like push the breath. But yeah, well, and but even... what the hell happened? Because the damn Germans just happened to shell it right then. You <laughs> dirty kraut bastards! <laughs> oh, Hans, I, I I think I found the new coordinates for our artillery strike. Yeah, yeah, it's good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> oh, I don't know, mine commandant. Doesn't that look like a field hospital? Quiet. <laughs> well, well, there has been no such thing as a Geneva Convention yet, because this is, after all, only the Great War. Fire away. Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> Shoots. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, um... But but also yeah I well but it, so yes there's there's the head that's talking from this vat in the black corner in the shadowy corner, but also the fact that the body is still up and moving around right like so much of, I okay uh, spoilers listeners I am not a neuroscientist I am not a neurosurgeon um, nor nor do I even play one on TV, uh, how, <laughs> however. That we are learning so much more about the central nervous system and like the the whole like gut brain thing. Like there's an entire like semi-detached, semi-autonomous, quote unquote nervous, quote unquote thinking system that's based in, in your stomach. 
Um, and you know, who knows? I'm, I am almost positive that Lovecraft didn't know about that. He was just writing a creepy story that he was selling at half a cent a word. Um, but again, like the like weird sort of like, yeah, it could kind of make sense, you know, like, hey, if you cut the head off of a chicken, the body will run around for a little bit. Yeah. If you do the same for a British officer, <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know. I haven't been a field surgeon in World War One, so I haven't seen the things that Dr. West and our unnamed narrator have seen. So, you know, yeah. Could you speak? Yeah. I, I wasn't there, man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, man. The Martin is fucking whacked. That's all I know. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't got time to ask questions. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, all right. Well, hey, buddy. We have we have just our last chapter here. And boy, howdy. Isn't this a great title for part six? The Tomb Legions. When Dr. Herbert West disappeared a year ago, the Boston police questioned me closely. They suspected that I was holding something back, and perhaps suspected graver things. But I could not tell them the truth, because they would not have believed it. They knew, indeed, that West had been connected with activities beyond the credence of ordinary men, for his hideous experiments in the reanimation of dead bodies had long been too extensive to admit of perfect secrecy. But the final soul-shattering catastrophe held elements of demoniac... Okay, how many times does he use that word? <laughs> oh, dude, that's like his favorite, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, you know, sometimes it's cyclopean, sometimes it's antediluvian. In this story, it's demoniac uh, fantasy, which made even me doubt the reality of what I saw. I was West's closest friend and only confidential assistant. We had met years before in medical school... And from the first, I had shared his terrible researches. He had slowly tried to perfect a solution which, injected into the veins of the newly deceased, would restore life. A labor demanding an abundance of fresh corpses and therefore involving the most unnatural actions. Still more shocking were the products of some of the experiments. Grisly masses of flesh that had been dead, but that West waked to a blind, brainless, nauseous animation. These were the unusual results. For in order to reawaken the mind, it was necessary to have specimens so absolutely fresh that no decay could possibly affect the delicate brain cells. This need for very fresh corpses had been West's moral undoing. They were hard to get, and one awful day he had secured his specimen while it was still alive and vigorous. A struggle, a needle, and a powerful alkaloid had transformed it into a very fresh corpse, and the experiment had succeeded for a brief and memorable moment but West had emerged with the soul calloused and seared, and a hardened eye which sometimes glanced with a kind of hideous and calculating appraisal at men of especially sensitive brain and especially vigorous physique. Toward the end, I became acutely afraid of West, for he began to look at me that way. People did not seem to notice his glances, but they noticed my fear, and after his disappearance, used that as a basis for some absurd suspicions. Number one, I just want to say drink because I reckon to say you and I would both be potential victims of one Dr. Herbert West. Uh, drink. Che cheers to you, sir. Absolutely. 
sound nervous system and physically robust. Physically Goddamn robust. right, baby. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Western reality, right? Yep. Okay. Western reality was more afraid than I, for his abominable pursuits entailed a life of furtiveness and dreaded of every shadow. Partly, it was the police he feared, but sometimes his nervousness was deeper and more nebulous, touching on certain indescribable things into which he had injected a morbid life, and from which he had not seen that life depart. He usually finished his experiments with a revolver a few times he had not been quick enough. There was that first specimen who, on whose rifled grave marks of clawing were later seen. There was also the Arkham Professor's body, which had done cannibal things before it had been captured and thrust unidentified into a madhouse cell at Sefton, where it beat the walls of 16 years. Most of the other possibly surviving results were things less easy to speak of, for later in years, West's scientific zeal had degenerated to an unhealthy and fantastic mania, and he spent his chief skill in vice in vitalizing not entire human bodies, but isolated parts of bodies, and parts joined to organic matter other than human. It had become fiendishly disgusted by the time he disappeared. Many of his experiments could not even be hinted of in print. The Great War, though, which both of us served as surgeons, had intensified this side of West. In saying that West's fear of his specimens was nebulous, I have in mind particularly its complex nature. Part of it came from merely knowing the existence of such nameless monsters, while another part arose from apprehension of bodily harm they might, under certain circumstances, do him. Their disappearance added horror to the situation. Of them all, West knew the whereabouts of only one, the pitiful asylum thing. Then, there was a more suitable fear, and a very fantastic sensation resulting in the curious experiment in the Canadian Army in 1915, where West, in the midst of a severe battle, had reanimated Major Sir Eric Morland Clapham Lee, DSO, a fellow physician who knew about his experiments and could have duplicated them. The head had been removed, so that the possibility of quasi-intelligent life in the trunk might be investigated. Just as the building was wiped out by a German shell, there had been a success. The trunk had moved intelligently, and not unbelievably to relate, we, both, we were both sickeningly sure that the articulate sound had come from the detached head as it lay in the shadowy corner of the laboratory. The shell had been merciful in a way, but Wes could never feel as certain as he had wished that we were the only two survivors used to make shuddering conjectures or conjectures about the possible actions of a headless physician with the power of reanimating the dead. Fucking drink. <laughs> drink. <So good. laughs> just, just one more time. I'm gonna read this. Make shuddering conjectures about the possible actions of a headless physician with the power of reanimating the dead. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> West's last quarters were in a venerable house of much elegance, overlooking one of the oldest burying grounds in Boston. He had chosen the place for purely symbolic and fantastically aesthetic reasons, since most of the interments were of the colonial period and therefore of little use to a scientist seeking very fresh bodies. The laboratory was in a subcellar secretly constructed by imported workmen, and contained, a, and it contained a huge incinerator for the quiet and complete disposal of such bodies, or of or fragments and synthetic and synthetic mockeries of bodies, as might 
uh, remained from the morbid experiments and unhallowed amusements of the owner. During the excavation of the cellar, the workmen had struck some unseatingly ancient masonry, undoubtedly connected with the old burying ground, yet far too deep to correspond with any known sepulchre therein. After a number of calculations, West decided that it represented some secret chamber beneath the tomb of the, Av of the Av Averills, where the last interment had been made in 1768. I was with him when he studied the nitrous, dripping walls laid bare by the spades and mattocks of the men, and was prepared for the gruesome thrill which would have attended the uncovering of centuried grave secrets. But for the first time West's new timidity conquered his natural curiosity, and he betrayed his degenerating fiber by ordering the masonry left intact and plastered over. Thus it remained till that final hellish night, part of the walls of the secret laboratory. I speak of West's decadence, but must add that it was a purely mental and intangible thing. Outwardly, he was the same to the last, calm, cold, slight, and yellow-haired, with spectacled blue eyes and a general aspect of youth, which years and fears seemed never to change. He seemed calm even when he thought of that clawed grave and looked over his shoulder, even when he thought of the, carnivor of the carnivorous thing that gnawed and pawed at Sefton Bars. The end of Herbert West began one evening in our joint study when he was dividing his curious glance between the newspaper and me. A strange headline item had struck at him from the crumpled pages, and a nameless titan claw had seemed to reach through sixteen years. Something fearsome and, and incredible had happened at Sefton Asylum fifty miles away, stunning the neighborhood and baffling the police. In the small hours of the morning, a body of silent men had entered the grounds, and their leader had aroused the attendants. He was a menacing figure, uh, a menacing military figure who talked without moving his lips, and whose voice seemed almost ventriloquially connected with an immense black case he carried. Oh, God. <laughs> his expressionless face was handsome to the point of radiant beauty, but had shocked the superintendent when the light hall fell on it. Uh, for it was a wax face with eyes of painted glass. Some nameless accident had befallen this man. A larger man guided his steps a repellent hulk whose bluish face seemed half eaten away by some unknown malady. The speaker had asked for the custody of the cannibal monster committed from Arkham 16 years before, and upon being refused gave a signal which precipitated a shocking riot. The fiends had beaten, trampled, and bitten every attendant who did not flee, killing four and finally succeeding in the liberation of the monster. Those victims who could not recall the event without hysteria swore that the creatures had acted less like men than like unthinkable automata guided by the wax-headed leader, or by the wax-faced leader. By the time help could be summoned, every trace of the men and of their mad charge had vanished. From the hour of reading this item until midnight, West sat almost paralyzed. At midnight, the doorbell rang, startling him fearfully. All this stuff... All the servants were asleep in the attic, so I answered the bell. As I have told the police, there was no wagon in the street, but only a group of strange-looking figures bearing a, bearing a large square box, which they deposited in the hallway, after one of them grunted in a highly unnatural voice, Express! Prepaid! They filed out of the house in a jerky tread. And as I watched them go, I had the odd idea they were turning toward the ancient cemetery on the which the back of the house abutted. When I slammed the door after them, West came downstairs and looked in the box. It was about two square feet and bore West's correct name and present address. It also bore the inscription, From Sir... From Eric... 
Oh, Ooh, poor fucking zombies. I apologize. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. You're good. That's gross. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> and bore the inscription from Eric Moreland Clapham Lee, St. Eloy, Flanders. Six years before in Flanders, a shelled hospital a, a shelled hospital had fallen upon the headless reanimated trunk of Dr. Clapham Lee, and upon the detached head which, perhaps, had uttered articulate sounds. West was not even excited now. His condition was more ghastly. Quickly he said, It is the finish, but let's incinerate this. We carried the thing down to the laboratory, listening. I do not remember many particulars. You can imagine my state of mind. But it is a vicious lie to say it was Herbert West's body which I put into the incinerator. We both inserted the whole unopened wooden box, closed the door, and started the electricity. Nor did any sound come from the box after all. It was West who first noticed the falling plaster on that part of the wall where the ancient tomb masonry had been covered up. I was going to run, but he stopped me. Then I saw a small black aperture, felt a ghoulish wind of ice, and smelled the charnel bowels of a, of a putrescent earth. There was no sound, but just then the electric lights went out, and I saw, outlined against some phosphorescence of the netherworld, a horde of silent, toiling things which only insanity, or worse, could create. Their outlines were human, semi-human, fractionally human, and not human at all. All, the horde was grotesquely heterogeneous. They were removing the stones quietly, one by one, from the sentried wall. And then, as the breach became large enough, they came out into the laboratory in single file, led by a stalking thing with a beautiful head made of wax. A sort of mad-eyed monstrosity behind the leader seized on Herbert West. West did not resist or utter a sound. They, then they all sprang at him and tore him to pieces before my eyes, bearing the fragments away into that subterranean vault of fabulous abominations. West's head was carried off by the wax-headed leader, who wore a Canadian officer's uniform. As it disappeared, I saw that the blue eyes behind the spectacles were hideously blazing with their first touch of frantic, visible emotion. Servants found me unconscious in the morning. West was gone. The incinerator contained only unidentifiable ashes. Detectives have questioned me, but what can I say? The Sefton tragedy they will not connect with West. Not that, nor the men with the box, whose existence they deny. I told them of the vault, and they pointed to the unbroken plaster wall and laughed. So I told them no more. They imply that I am a madman or a murderer. Probably I am that. But I might not be mad if those accursed tomb legions had not been so silent. Dun, dun. <laughs> okay, I'll stop doing that. Where are the, the Ritz? Where are the Ritz? <laughs> I, oh man. Okay, yes. So even if it had been a while since I last read this. Oh man, it's good. It's horrible, but it's so stinking good. It's so good. It's... I also, you know, God love Lovecraft. He really wants you to make sure you know exactly what's happening and tells you five times exactly what happened. And, you know, or most times you say, if you haven't read part one, go ahead and read part one. Nah, it's cool. You can just jump to part five. It's all right. Yeah. 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 He, there is something to be said about, um, yeah, like kind of 
scaffolding and hey remember last time that yeah last time on herbert west reanimator you know there, there there's something to be said that is generally speaking a good idea a good technique um but, but but yeah, like, okay, we get it. You're his medical assistant. You met at Miskatonic. We know, we know, we know. He's a toe-headed prick. We get it. We get it. We understand. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yes, I think a uh, totally fitting ending for somebody who did horrible, unspeakable things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It I'm glad that the bad guy got it and the unnamed assistant didn't really get it. He's just got to live with the horror. I like, it's a really cool scene to me how they're just all silent as they're doing this. Yeah. They, yeah. they very quietly take the wall apart. They very quietly go rip Herbert West with limb from limb. And then they very quietly walk away with him and fix up the hole they made. And yeah. And <sighs> off they go down to the bowels of the earth. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. No, this is <laughs> yeah. This is a solid one. This is really really good. Uh. Well. Okay. I guess we should also maybe perhaps. Um. I. Uh, so, as I've mentioned before, and I have no problem admitting, I am a pussycat, and I struggle with um, scary movies. So I have not seen the movie Reanimator. Oh, really? Have you, Mark? Have you seen Oh, yeah, dude, it, it kicks ass. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay, well, well, maybe maybe I'll just have to do that. Maybe I'll need to toughen up and, and check it out. But um... <laughs> Yeah, Jeffrey Combs is uh, Herbert West. He does a really solid job of just being like, he's not unhinged, but he's clearly insane, and he just... There, there's a bit, there's a bit where he uses his, and they talk about in the story, you know, how many countless guinea pigs and cats and dogs and his girl, his roommate's girlfriend's cat, the, the, our nameless narrator in here, um, her cat gets killed and he reanimates it and it just goes apeshit. And there's a whole bit and like, you didn't tell me you reanimated the cat. What was I supposed to do? Leave you a note? It's it's little bits. It's, they're amazing. (laughs) You you really ought to. It's really worth your time. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, well, maybe I will then. Maybe I will. Maybe, you know, hey, Mark, you know, uh, we are coming across, we're getting close to Halloween and in need of, well, not in need of, but it might be nice to do some sort of oogie spooky uh, uh, media challenge. So th- that might be it. Maybe this is the year, 2023, where Josh stops being a pussycat and he actually watches watches movies like this uh, i think we are overdue for a halloween challenge yeah I, absolutely. yeah i think so i think so um <laughs> and then you can watch from beyond and it can ruin your dinner oh yeah see there like you go yeah me. we'll do yeah yeah we can well okay so i guess we kind of we, we already did uh the nicholas cage color out of space uh yeah, our very yeah. our very first summer cinema series um but uh I, I mean, I, I don't know if there's too... I, I, I don't know if there's enough Lovecraftian uh, film adaptations to, to, to sustain an entire uh, Oogie Spooky Month challenge. But hey, you know, maybe that's one that we pick for like one week or something. I don't know. Uh, there's, you know, also, you know, Bride, 
of Reanimator, which is even stupider than the original. So, you know. There's also the damn thing, the Dagon. Dagon is a really solid oh, one. It's okay. a Spanish, or it's a Portuguese uh, uh, yeah, picture. Right. It's really, really good. Um, the HP Lovecraft Literary Society put out a uh, silent feature of The Call of Cthulhu in 2004, and it's still probably the best anything Lovecraft I've ever watched, so... I, I mean, okay. I think... There's uh there's options, you know, or 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 maybe we call an audible and Josh guests on a very special Hallow Spooky episode of I can't wait to show the kids when we look at Animator and Bride of Reanimator. That... Who can say, gang? Because just turns out that Brad and I might be three weeks shy on our season three, all about monsters. So, <laughs> you know, who can say? Yeah, that that could very that could very well be the case. Um, but uh, but all that is to say. Mark, it's great to be back in form. It's great to be back in wizardy form, and uh, returning to one of our early loves, which is Lovecraft, and mm-hmm. reading Reanimator because that was a ton of fun. That was a blast. Yeah, uh, great to be back. Well, and so listeners, as always, we love we love hearing from you. What what are your thoughts? What are your experiences? Um, uh, I, I, I mean, I was prepared to go into this whole thing like, you know, there's this there, there's this really kind of interesting academic work about like, yeah, why are we so obsessed with zombies? Because, you know, all through the 2000s and 2010s, there were like zombies up the wahoo. Um, but but maybe we'll just have to say that for a proper two wizards episodes where we talk about zombies and get into that. Uh, but, uh, but we always enjoy hearing from you. We always love hearing your perspectives. So send us an email to two wizards podcast at gmail.com. Find us on, uh, uh, Twitter. Cause we're still, still calling it Twitter. I don't care what, what fluid Elon Musk is pumping into this, <laughs> this app. <laughs> we're calling it Twitter. Um, but find us on there. Toe-headed at- prick. <laughs> I know it's not what toe-headed means, but, but still, let's still. The point remains. The point stands. Uh, find us over on Twitter at Two Wizards Pod C One. We are active on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you can find me uh, active on Twitter uh, at Plaid Barbarian. And Mark, you have all sorts of other things. All sorts of other things that you've been uh, kind of cooking up and experimenting with and concocting over the years as a part of uh, High Hammock Radio slash High Hammock Studios. What are some of these other things? Oh, some of these other things might be the podcast we have mercilessly pimped tonight, the I Can't Wait to Show My Kids podcast, where me and our buddy Brad and sometimes Josh and sometimes our other buddy Johnny, well, we take movies that we loved and we make the other one watch them and then we talk about them and discuss them. This week I was let off my chain and I was a screaming headless demon for The Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) And I promised Brad that I would get that bad Larry into under two episodes or under two hours. And hey, baby, it came out at a buck. 59 so i kept my promise Here we go but also you can find me on the dangle podcast where me and our buddy johnny take two episodes of that beloved adult animation classic king of the hill talk about the goods the bads the highs and the lows and see if it should be injected with the reanimation serum and the answer is a resounding no let it stay dead sometimes dead is better but this week we watched glenn peggy glenn ross and the passion of the dotereve uh you can also find me at marky stardust on twitter and yeah please guys thank you number one for listening but number two if you have anything to say about anything at all by all means let me and josh know um 
Yeah, Josh, zombies in the future, question mark? I'll go back and read all of the Max Brooks canon because it's been a couple years. Yeah, yeah, I am so into that. Um, And also, yeah, future cinema series slash cross- crossover, I reckon. But yeah, anyway, um, Josh, thank you for being here, buddy. Listeners, thank you for being here and letting us be a part of your day. And lest this uh, corpse get too stale, I say we uh, get on out of here, buddy. <laughs> Put six shots into it by the moonlight. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Uh, Well, Mark, thank you also. Always a treat, always a pleasure. And listeners, thank you very much. Uh, My name is Josh, and I'm a wizard. And my name is Mark, and I drank an entire half gallon of zombies. (laughs) Take care. (laughs) He rolled upon his back, and after that... I killed them all! Ah!